And we're live. Hunt Lawrence. All right, here comes Hunt. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I think we'll start out with oil first. Oil is in a decline. In the price of oil, there's a risk premium, and the risk premium has gone down, and we hear about that uh, from every news source we look at. So it's good news for the world, not necessarily good news for the price of oil. Then on Exhibit C, there's at least 4 million barrels of surplus, even with the increase of demand. And most of that surplus is with uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, Abu Dhabi. And the concern is that a Saudi official confirmed street gossip that the Saudis, despite Gaza, were still negotiating a deal between the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, have Saudi Arabia recognize Israel and exchange ambassadors. So the expectation is that if that gets concluded at some point in the next month or two, some amount of the two, two and a half million barrels a day of Saudi crude that is being held off the market will go on the market. So Rather than think about $120, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're down in the mid seventies. Um, don't think there's any set of circumstances where the Saudis want to see a, a price Brent, which typically trades a couple of bucks more than WTI. Don't think they want to see a price of the sixties, but I'm knocking wood as I say that. Shirts of natural gas, the chart on exhibit B. Mates 24 and 25 look pretty good. Reduced surplus of, of supply over demand. The two things that help demand are power. And the power demand has grown up two Bs a day the last two years. And it flattens out here. Hopefully in 24 and 25, there'll be a little more uplift. And then LNG. And LNG is predicted here to only go up one and a half Bs a day. The, some other projections say two Bs a day or more. Um, we may need that improved demand from uh, power and from LNG because that dry gas production <clears throat> estimated 102 and a half, 24. That's currently running 103, 104. So that's kind of discouraging. It, if you look at the table just above the increase from 21 to 23, Nine bees a day, or about four and a half bees a day per year. Half of it was from Permian, which is associated gas. And in an kind of way, high oil prices means more associated gas from Permian. Go to the top set of numbers. Our largest source of gas is the Marcellus, which is flat because it's kind of pipe constrained. The Haynesville has grown, and the Permian has grown, and all other is expected to go down a bit. 
The future strip is three fifty or twenty four four dollars for twenty five. Hopefully, those numbers will will be what what the way the markets work on those prices. If you just slide to twenty one, it averaged three seventy at twenty two. Very long, it's close to six dollars now. What in the world happened? Three seventy to six dollars down to eighty. It's pretty much Europe and Ukraine feeling that LNG prices would be very high, and that would pull up U.S. gas prices. LNG prices and the internal prices in Europe got as high as sixty dollars. But as the Europeans made it through the winter, uh, they came down, and those prices now, which turning European gas storage full. Those prices now are, you know, fourteen, fifty dollars. So, you know, the Europeans made it through last winter. You know, the expectation is they'll make it through this winter. So the gas markets all considerably. Exhibit A, which we don't yet have the deficit numbers for twenty-three, but they've been announced. It's somewhere between a trillion seven and two trillion just spending, being on highly or giving student loan debt, but they're a lot more than trillion four. And the House leadership under the new speaker is insisting that special emergency expenditures like Israel uh, expenditure reduced somewhere else. That bill will go out of conference with a Senate bill that uh, will include probably Israel and Ukraine as well as border security. And the Capri's, the House and Senate Capri's will have to work it out. But it is a good sign to have at least one of our bodies that govern us insist that there's got to be some limit to the amount of money that's spent. I'd like to, since it's kind of well and gas related, go to the Anchero page. That was the one page that got updated last week. It's page 12. The three gas companies here, Antero is totally Marcellus, EQT is totally Marcellus, Chesapeake is about 60% Marcellus and 40% Hainesville, and Antero Midstream is here as a comparison. Antero Midstream's operation is entirely transporting, gathering, and, and processing Antero's gas production. Antero Resources owns about 31% of Antero Midstream. Purpose for having it here is to show how midstream and upstream are different. Midstream isn't impacted by commodity prices as much. And so the free cash flow in Ontario midstream is around $600 million. At today's gas prices, the cash flow in Ontario resources is which is all upstream, is around 600 million. If gas pricing just goes up like 50 cents, that free cash flow goes to a billion too. And the Ontario midstream free cash flow at 600 million stays more or less the same. You can see that Ontario midstream trades for 15 times free cash flow, which seems like a full price, but a dividend yield of 7% because it pays a lot in dividends. As you can see, their free cash flow is 600 million. Their dividends are 400 million. In Antero's case, out of 600 million, they buy in stock. They don't pay a dividend. So they're, they're both in the same range times free cash flow. But of course, if, 
if the price of gas is going to be 50 cents higher next year, and Gerald's free cash flow goes to a billion too. So it's it's a different investment. It's it's run by the same management, and Tero Midstream really doesn't have separate management. And uh, and Tero owns a third, but it is a good contrast of the difference between midstream and upstream and the impact of commodity price on that. The other thing I want to do, and I want in a preliminary way say, Mike and Jason, Diane, everyone else who's on this call, I'm going to make a comparison here, but please don't go out and act on it. If you go to page 11, and EOG isn't updated, but when we update it for the third quarter, it'll be about the same. EOG has no debt and it's trading for $75 billion. And it produces, doesn't say on this page, but if you took the daily pricing and you convert it to BTUs, you know, BTU is equal to about one MCM. It's 2.1 trillion BTUs that they produce. If you go to EQT, on page 12, their, their production is now about almost six Bs a day, and it's almost all gas, or it's gas and NGLs, and half the NGL barrel is ethane, which trades for less than gas, so just consider it 100% gas, all from the, the Marcellus. It's also 2.1 trillion. So in terms of heat content, they're equal, but Antero trades for Debt plus equity, 22 trillion, excuse me, 22 billion, where EOG trades for 75. Now, this is not a signal to go out and buy EQT, but it in, is interesting. I mean, the BTU equivalency is six MCF, one barrel, but obviously with gas at 350 and oil at $70, uh, you, that's like 20 to one. Now, EOG is only half oil. Interestingly enough, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty diverse. It's in a number of basins, but it is half gas and half oil. So if you're, if you're owning an upstream company and you believe in gas, you believe in LNG and whatnot, there are pure gas companies, Antero, EQT, Chesapeake, they're pure gas companies. But if you're just owning an upstream company, a way to kind of play kind of the, if, if we're talking sailing, sailing up the middle rather than left to right down a windward course, EOG half oil, you know, certainly has some advantages, even though it's trading for three times as much with producing the same heat content. I think we have to finish the 20 pages. And I think last time we got through page 18 and just just before we start on page 19 and 20, I want to make a point, which is, which I'm proud of personally, and I think Mike and Jason are proud of. There's only one company in this 20 pages, so let's say 17 pages, so let's say we average, so we have 60, 70, 80 companies. There's only one company that doesn't have free cash flow. Free cash flow defined as being after CapEx, and that's Nextera. Now, Nextera was considered to be the best company at doing renewable energy, wind, solar, they were going to do hydrogen. They're a very well-run company. They had a, have a very fine utility, Florida Power and Light, within it. And they have a sister company, which they run, an MLP. And the, the stock's been terrible this year. In fact, if you take an index, 
of companies that are based on renewable energy and whatnot, the index is off 40% this year. And NextEra would be the largest company in that index. So despite the support of the Biden administration for more renewables, for, you know, these DOE grants to promote hydrogen and whatnot, the market's judgment is that they were overpriced and, you know, they're off 40%. And I would say 40% is, doesn't necessarily make them cheap uh, because a lot of them don't have free cash flow. So cheap represents to investors, I think, getting down to a reasonable ratio times free cash flow. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So, if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now, back to the show. With that as an introduction, when we turn to page 19, these are two pharmaceutical companies and two health service companies, United Health and CBS. I'm going to make a couple of comments about United Health and CBS and then turn it over to Jason, who knows these companies and also will lead you through Regeneron and Biojet. But CBS, the way I look at it, is they want desperately to be United Health Group. Why? And, and then look at the difference in valuation. United Health is trading for 20 times free cash flow, 5% free cash yield, and CBS is nine times. Now, CBS is was a drug chain and they acquired an insurance company and they're trying to make themselves like United Health. What is significant about United Health? The Medicare, Medicaid, all kinds of problems, private insurance problems just wouldn't work without United Health. They're very good at doing all the uh, running those systems and look, look at the revenue that comes through. I mean, it's 370 million in revenues and they have been a good investment. They probably will continue to be a good investment. Even if you went to single-payer healthcare, you know, how is, how is the Medicare system going to work without United Health? So, you know, I never owned it. I kind of take the view that we spend 18% of our GNP on healthcare. Uh, Singapore's famous example spends only 6% of their GNP on healthcare. We have this huge budget deficit. The easiest way to fix a budget deficit is reform healthcare. Will it ever happen? You know, the, the lobbying dollars involved are banks. Probably won't happen. Will CBS get to the point where they're as reliable a conformer as United Healthcare? I don't know. I don't have a view there. Personally, I'm not really interested in owning either one of them because of this view I have that as a society, we've got to tackle the cost of healthcare. But with that, I'll turn it over to Jason to lead our discussion on this page. Yeah, I thought you, you summed up United Health Group pretty well. I will just say that CVS, they were a drugstore chain. They want to be a United Health Group, but I'll tell you what they are is they're a pharmacy benefit manager. Of their $350 billion in revenue, a quarter of it roughly is their, their retail stores. A quarter of it is the health insurance Aetna group that they own. 
And half of it is their pharmacy benefit manager, CVS Caremark. So what, what a pharmacy benefit manager is, is they negotiate on behalf of the payers, so like the insurers, the price of drugs from the manufacturers. And then they, then on the other side of the market, they, they negotiate with the pharmacies for what they're you know, allowed to charge patients, consumers for those drugs. So the idea of it was, was a positive for the, for the market, for the consumer, cheaper drugs ultimately in the end. But what you're seeing is, is this middleman's taking hundreds of billions of dollars, taking it out of the market. And you got to think that that's going to drive up the price of drugs. They've grown so big and have so much influence. So this is the three biggest pharmacy benefit managers control 80% of prescription drugs. And they have so much influence in the system that they dictate which drugs are available at pharmacies, what the pharmacies will charge, and how much they get paid for those drugs. The FTC is starting to look at, at these businesses and saying, are they really in the consumer's best interest? I would lean that they're not. And if you think action is coming, either you know the market dynamics change or the FTC and the government do, do crack down on this, half of CVS's revenue is at stake there. And, and the market is kind of moving away from PBMs also. So here in California, our Blue Cross Blue Shield system dropped their, their PBM in favor of using a combination of a cost plus drug and an Amazon to use their pharmacy and, and prime to deliver drugs to, to your doorstep, essentially, to fill prescriptions. And of that PBM revenue, we assume it's pretty high margin. So, you know, it's right now it's about half the price on a free cash flow basis of, of United Healthcare. But if you were to take that chunk out, it would be, well, they, they might be negative free cash flow. Yeah. Well, not, not a strong case for investing. Jason, Regeneron just always seems to be reasonably successful, but it's hard. I, I mean, I've watched the company for a number of years just now. It's hard to really, for me anyway, to conceptualize, other than being competent, exactly how to place Regeneron. So over to you. Yeah, we feel they're kind of priced for perfection. But, but a quick little aside is when the pandemic started, I was doing some consulting for a software company that they facilitated running clinical trials through a software solution remotely. So participants in the trials didn't have to go to clinics. Became very important when the pandemic started, as you can imagine. And one of our, our customers was Regeneron. So we, ran, we helped run their trial for their antibody therapy for COVID. Um, it was very successful. But one, one big takeaway out of that is they were by far the most organized and most professional team of any of the pharma companies we worked with. So if, if any company is, is priced for perfection and, and can rise to that bar, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's the Regeneron team. Right. And I'll add a couple of things on Regeneron because I looked at them relatively recently. Their, their main product is called Ayella. It's a treatment for macular degeneration. Um, and a handful of other conditions. It's actually down year over year revenue wise, but they got an approval for essentially a high dose version of that product. And so basically the bet on the company now is this high dose version is going to be a defensive move against competitive treatments that will bring the market back to them. And the pricing's higher, so it's better margin, better 
better for the patients because you have fewer treatments. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But back to what Jason said, we think it's in general priced pretty much for perfection. Yeah. Well, Biogen's fairly controversial, isn't it? It's up and down and all over. Uh, um, but once you get over to you guys. Yeah, so the the big moves for Biogen are its two largest drugs are facing patent cliffs. One had a portion of its patent portfolio expire earlier this year, and then their their big drug, Spinraza, comes off patent at the end of this year. So they're, they're facing you know a lot of competition, potentially from generics there, but they have launched a new drug to, to potentially fill that void in, in sales. And it's a, it's a treatment for Alzheimer's, Lakembi, and it's, it's an interesting story. So they, they partner with a Japanese pharma called ASI, and they originally had a, an Alzheimer's treatment that hit the market. It was approved and later got pulled from the market. And, and Biogen had a pretty favorable royalty split with, with ESI. On that one, they were going to pay 8% royalties, I believe. And the part of that agreement was the next Alzheimer's therapy, they would split 50-50. So the, the first one got pulled from market, and then this new blockbuster drug is, is the next one. So they have a, a much less favorable split on the revenue there. But it is expected. I think the expectations are north of $12 billion a year in sales by 2028. And, and Medicare has picked it up. So the, it, it should be a, a, a large drug. But in the next five years, I expect a lot of competition in, in that kind of in the Alzheimer's treatment, uh, you know, to arise. I think we're going to have to do page 20 next week because we want to leave time for first couple of pages and news on the first couple of pages. Yap learnings came out and uh, were, you know, flattish, but I was disappointing as I guess they could be. And then one thing occurred to me, I haven't talked to my, my, my talk every morning, I haven't talked, but I mean, is there a set of circumstances where the price of Apple and the kind of flat results, you know, and, and, and with it trading at 30 times free cash flow, or somehow Berkshire Hathaway decides to lighten up? Mike Jason is, I mean, the impact on the stock price of uh, Berkshire Hathaway selling any other position would probably be significant. But if you were, uh, if you were Todd Combs or, or, Buffett himself, or what about how, how would you, how would you treat this position that they made so much money on? I, I noticed the Berkshire Hathaway report, their market value of their securities position were down 30 billion in the third quarter and 20 out of the 30 was their position in Apple. How would you look at it in terms of, have you made a lot of money in it? Do you just stick with it over the next five years or how would you size up Apple if you're the largest Apple stockholder? So before I answer that, I'll explain why I think the stock's held up. Because the last four quarters, they've had year-over-year declines in total revenue, which is, you know, it's, it's impressive that they trade at 32 times free cash flow, given that fact. The interesting point, though, is especially in this quarter, is their gross margins went up pretty significantly. And part of that is because services went up pretty significantly. So the theory is that maybe they renegotiated their deal with Google because you wouldn't expect that to have gone up that quickly. And any increase in revenue from Google would be 100% gross margin. So 
they they do have a sort of a beautiful thing going where if hardware sales are down, gross margin goes up. So that sort of supports the flat stock price over the last year. Now, to answer the question about what do I do if I was Todd Combs or, or Buffett, um, I, well, I think I'd do what we did. is we, we actually sold our Apple position. And I hate selling any position, especially one that's a good company that's well run. But especially now, I think there's a lot of other things that are interesting. Uh, fortunately, we don't suffer from the problem, the, the, the weight of the problem that uh, Berkshire Hathaway has is just being so big. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I say it in jest, but uh, we, we don't suffer from the same constraints. And there's only so many investments where you can pour that large amount of money into. So they deal with a lot of large numbers in a very different way. So, uh, you know, your average investor that's in an S&P 500 index fund has a pretty healthy chunk of Apple as well. So, uh, you know, it would take things going severely south to really affect their stock price, I think. But it would, you know, if somebody like Buffett did start to sell, you would see it. Yeah. I guess yeah. one thing I, th I think about is uh, um, a cell phone and particularly an iPhone is not necessarily a luxury item anymore. It's a it's a necessity for, for most people. So that's a good business to be in. Yeah. We have three or four minutes left. Mike and I this morning or yesterday morning asked the which we're talking about given the multiple of language models that have been announced, what exactly that means in terms of how much GPUs Microsoft and Amazon and Google and Oracle have to get into their, their server farms. And Mike's an interesting thing, which we'll see how we'll see how Jason reacts to this. Mike said, even though the NVIDIA price is hot because of free cash flow, I mean it assumes free cash flow goes from you know, I have here on page three free cash flow at a current run rate of forty billion of revenues, eleven billion of free cash flow. And it probably I mean it's a hundred times free cash flow, so you could do, just do the rough math of whoever's paying, you know, this kind of price for the stock is assuming free cash flow is going to go to 30 billion and, and be, you know, not just go up and go down, maybe, maybe spend a little bit of time flattening out, but, but be pretty well established at 30 billion. Jason Mike said this morning or yesterday where I forget which that he thought price for advanced micro devices had more downside risk. At the price for the video, and want to see what your commentary is on that. It's interesting. Um, I, I see where he's coming from. Certainly, D is is trying to get gain market share in the GPUs for the AI space. They're making progress there, and I think some some expectations are are they're going to take market share, and we'll see if that that pans out. The CPU side is stagnating right if you look at the the total spend in data centers that was all going to cpu servers the vast majority of that spend now goes to gpus and amd is only going to capture two billion of that i think they projected for next year and that's and nvidia is doing tens of billions you know what, what are they they're they're projecting 80, 80. yeah <laughs> um, and and only what like a teens teens in that is gaming so 
call it 65 billion in, in AI revenue. So and the only way they capture that is by pricing low enough so that it's worthwhile to essentially do the heavy lifting, the software work to make it work. Yeah. I, I see where he's coming from. I don't disagree with it. You know, it, I think AMD is more vulnerable to other things like risk five coming in and the hyperscalers just building their own chips rather than trying to shift off of NVIDIA to AMD GPUs. So certainly, certainly understand it. The, yeah. gro- the growth is by far on NVIDIA side. Yeah. And, and I, I've got used to the term hyperscalers, but I think what we mean by hyperscalers are Microsoft, Azure, and Amazon, and, and I guess Facebook slash Meta for its own account. In other words, the people are building data centers and start to use their own chips as compared to paying, you know, a real premium price than a video. Right, right. Yeah, they have, they have networks of data centers around the world and at an extremely large scale. Right. Just as we, since everyone has a macro on the mind and since the uh, Chinese leaders come into San Francisco, I think next week, once again, commentary for Mike, we talk 20 minutes every morning at 8.30 Eastern time. So it's pretty early San Diego time. I was commenting, you know, how, how significantly will the limitations on shipping any kind of GPUs into China affect NVIDIA? And Mike said an interesting thing. He said, well, the, you know, the chances are, you know, they'll go in a big lot to someone in Saudi Arabia that somehow find their way to Raleigh or whomever in China. Jason, it, it, I, 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 how, how, how trackable is this? I guess, yes, you know, barely tracked, but I mean, how, you know, if you're, if you're Alibaba or Raleigh or Tencent or whatnot, is it feasible to get the GPUs you need kind of from the third market or, you know, someone reselling them to you? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would speculate they don't even have to end up physically in China. You know, they could, they could be in data centers in Saudi Arabia and then they, they have an agreement where, you know, Huawei or Baidu rents the entirety of that data center and they just do it all remote. So I, I think they'll, They'll get the capacity they need. Mm-hmm. It's right. an interesting point because we have these, you know, weapons export control requirements. And unlike a weapon, you don't need to physically have it anywhere. So it's another sign of antiquated laws and antiquated approaches to solve new problems. Right. Right. Well, that'd be a great question if someone got the Commerce Secretary here someone like that in a news conference to say, what about GPUs housed in Saudi Arabia with capacity rounded out to China? That'd be a great question. Someone should plant that. See if see, see how up to date she is on how things like that could happen. With that, we'll do page 20 next week and everyone be well and stay healthy and we'll look forward to talking next week. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. 
While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.